Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Edward J. Watts, Professor and Alcibiades Vasiliadis, Endowed Chair in Byzantine Greek History at the University of California, San Diego. The author of numerous books, his most recent is Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny, and that book and its topic is the subject of our conversation today. Ed, thanks for being on Historically Thinking. Thanks so much. I'm really excited. So uh, this... Uh, well, this remi- reminds me, the whole reason why you started this book was because of discussions with your children and students, which reminds me of, I hope, an apocryphal story told to me by an Oxford classicist of a professor who, in the acknowledgement, said, people often thank their students for ideas. I have never learned anything from my students and therefore see no reason to mention them. Um, but, he was an <laughs> idi- but, he, but he was an idiot, obviously. And we were just talking before the recording about how the quote-unquote stupid questions that people ask are really helpful. Like, uh, we were talking about how did Cicero buy a house in Specie for three million denarii when a denarius weighs four grams. So obviously some kind of credit was involved. But I guess your kids and your students were asking you questions about the life and death of republics. So what kind of questions were they asking? Uh, so I think that the the thing that's really striking, especially for a Roman historian, is that they weren't asking these questions 20 years ago. Right. You know, the Republic was something that was a sort of theoretical thing, and it was interesting because the personalities were big. Mm-hmm. But the idea of a Republic and how it worked wasn't something that they were particularly interested in thinking about. And what I've noticed, especially you know, since 2008, but you know, particularly since 2016, um, students are particularly interested in questions of what is a republic supposed to do? How does it work? Mm-hmm. Um, what is the basic kind of promise that it makes to its citizens? And what do citizens have to do to be sure that that promise is kept? Um, and they ask these questions in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. Some of them are specific questions about Roman material. Um, sometimes they invite me to, to think about how the Roman material we're looking at relates to contemporary situations. Uh, but for the most part, I think what they're looking to do is play with an idea of what's what's the possible futures? Mm-hmm. What are the possible futures that we can confront? And how does the past provide us with a way to think through all the implications that we're seeing? That's very nice. Um, yeah, yeah. And so the, that's what the book is designed to do, is to give you a sort of sense of things that happen and what some of the consequences are in the past so that we can look out for these things in, in the present. Let's begin um, in Medius Race. Uh, so with uh, Pyrrhus, I had yeah. heard the term Pyrrhic victory, got that, but I didn't really know who Pyrrhus was. So who was he and what sort of perspective did he have when he first encountered the Roman Republic? So the Pyrrhus is a, the reason I chose to start with Pyrrhus is because you have in Pyrrhus the kind of Mediterranean present of the early part of the third century BC mm-hmm. confronting the Mediterranean future in Rome. Um, and the Mediterranean present in the third century BC is this, this present of the sort of world after Alexander the Great. 
um, a world of kind of military adventure and empire building mm -hmm. where um, charismatic and powerful kings um, conduct campaigns with very skilled professional armies. Um, and they don't have huge armies and they're not citizen armies. You know, these are people, these are professionals. Um, their job is to make, make war and conquer things. Um, and when Pyrrhus comes into Southern Italy, he's invited in by uh, a city state in Southern Italy that has been confronting the Romans um, and is scared because Rome is, is quite powerful. Um, Rome is the opposite in many ways of what Pyrrhus is uh, because Rome is a political system. It's a, it's not one person and his friends. It's a group of people um, working collectively for the sort of greater good of, of the city and the citizen population of, of that city. Um, and so when Pyrrhus comes into southern Italy, what he's expecting is something quite similar to what he's seen in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, his professional army will fight another professional army um, and they will probably win because Pyrrhus's professional army is um, in many ways, you know, as good as sort of a component of Alexander the Great's army. Yeah. Um, but when Pyrrhus gets into Italy, what sort of surprises him is he does win. Um, but the Romans fight better than he expects. You know, citizen levies tend not to be able to fight well against professional armies. Mm -hmm. And the, the Romans fight well. Um, they inflict casualties on Pyrrhus. And then they don't end the war. And this is shocking to Pyrrhus. You know, usually um, with this kind of balance, if Pyrrhus wins the battle, um, the, the adversary will come to some kind of agreement and mm -hmm. Pyrrhus can set the terms of the agreement and Pyrrhus can, you know, be victorious and take whatever it is he's, he's able to take. Uh, what instead happens is Pyrrhus proposes very modest and very mild terms to the Romans and they turn him down. Um, and then they fight again and the Romans fully equip another citizen army and mm -hmm. it comes out and it is defeated by Pyrrhus. Um, but Pyrrhus realizes that he can't take any more losses at this level. Mm -hmm. He cannot replenish his professional forces. And the Romans seem completely able to replenish their citizen forces. Um, and so Pyrrhus ends up basically having to cut out of southern Italy. Uh, and the term Pyrrhic victory is sort of coined. Um, the Pyrrhic victory is the, the victory is, is won but the consequences and the cost of that victory is so great that mm -hmm. in many ways it actually constitutes a strategic defeat. So the Roman Republic is sort of the key. If you're facing the Roman Republic, they will refuse to submit. They refuse to admit that they're licked, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, um, they won't stop. Uh, and this is the, the sort of defining feature of the Roman Republic, sort of vis-a-vis -vis anybody in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. Um there's a, a structure within the Roman Republic that really um, ensures that nothing happens in the state unless there's a broad consensus for mm -hmm. that course of action. And once that consensus is reached, people basically persist in that action regardless of the consequences. I mean, he, he says at one point, and just a couple of weeks ago, people will recall we talked with uh, Eric Jensen about his book on barbarians um, and what the complicated meaning of barbarian over time. Uh, Pyrrhus or one of his people says, these barbarians are not barbarous of the, of the Romans. It's like, <laughs> they don't speak Greek, but you know, they're not, they're not who we thought they were. Um, 
he meets uh well at one point this is if I, if I recall he tries to bribe one of the ambassadors for for Bricky, for Bricky's. Um, why can't he bribe this guy? Why does that fail? What does it, what does he not understand about Roman culture at that time? Yeah, so it's, the, an important, uh, it's an important moment given what happens later on. So the consequence for you know for Pyrrhus, um, he again doesn't completely grasp that this place is different, mm-hmm. and Rome is quite poor relatively speaking. Militarily, it's powerful, but economically, it's it's underdeveloped and it's poor. And Pyrrhus sees an opening in, um, you know, using some of the wealth that he possesses to bribe one of the people who are politically important, but economically um, not very well off. And this is Fabricius. Um, And when Pyrrhus offers him money, what Fabricius sort of responds by saying is, the only thing that really matters to me uh, is what I achieve in the political context set by my, my city. And if I'm wealthy but dishonored, it's completely worthless to me, and it's completely worthless to my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is sort of deeply ingrained in the way that Roman, especially aristocratic families, functioned. Um, at funerals and at holidays throughout the year, there were death masks of ancestors. And at each of these sort of ceremonial occasions, the masks of every ancestor would come out and they would talk about the deeds of this person and specifically the the actions of this person performed for the Roman Republic. Mm-hmm. And what Fabricius understood and what he tried to communicate was, you know, if I if I get tremendous wealth, I will always be remembered as someone who got tremendous wealth at the expense of my country mm-hmm. and at the expense of, of my city. And Five generations hence, that will still be my legacy, and it will be my family's legacy. It's uh, really important to put a pin on this right now, and to or a star next to it, because it's really important. This little story for I think the rest of your narrative and for the rest of what you're trying to explain. Uh, I've been influenced by the sociologist Murray Milner a lot over the last couple of years, and who's written on status and on elites. And one of Murray's interests are elite systems of status, which are not based on money. Uh, And he, the caste system in India is an example. Um, Mm -hmm. High schools are another example. They aren't necessarily, high school, (laughs) the caste systems are not necessarily based on money. Uh, You could be a cool kid and be poor in in interesting ways. Um, It's really interesting how part of the structure of the Republic are, say, cultural they're not guardrails, they're Jersey barriers against, mm-hmm. against uh, their mores, <laughs> uh, which uh, which prevent, they're not part of the any kind of constitution even, not even the informal written one of the, of the Romans, but they are these profound cultural barriers against um, elevating your status through simply wealth. And I found that one of the most fascinating things about the book, given... What happens later? If we um, we know the story of Caesar, we know that's not happening, you know, in the first by the first century. Yeah, and that's I think the, the biggest change um, is when you start, you know, when when the Roman Republic sort of emerges into the the sort of moments where the historical sources are good enough that you can kind of trust them. Mm-hmm. Um, the the model that you have is the most important thing in the society as a sort of social capital. Mm-hmm. And the Roman Republic has a monopoly on that social capital. Mm-hmm. And you're, in essence, all of the achievements that matter to you are defined by that republic and all of the honors that 
that matter to you are given by that republic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's in a way kind of creating an organism out of an entity, out of a system. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that's an important sort of way to start the book, because what you see is a republic that is incredibly powerful in regulating the conduct of the people within it. Mm -hmm. That system and the rules that govern that system um, provide very clear kind of feedback to people living under it. And that feedback sort of guides their actions and it it makes it almost impossible for them to consider certain courses of action that Mm -hmm. by the late Republic are going to be completely normal. Yeah. Let's talk about the structure of the early Republic. But before we touch on that, we should probably say something about sources. This is Mm -hmm. the, this is the time to do it. Um, if Mary Beard was, you know, a part of this conversation, she'd be waving her arms and shouting that um, you're going to use a lot of these cynical, crusty old fellows like Tacitus, um, <laughs> uh, who really are just down in the dumps. And they're talking about this mythic past, which never really existed. So, you know, how would you respond to that? And what sort of sources are you going to use? Um, well, so most of the sources that I'm using to reconstruct the narrative are imperial sources, many of which are written in Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, and the interesting thing about these authors, and these are people like Appian and Cassius Dio, mm-hmm. um, they're writing in the second and early third century AD. Um, they are Greek speaking Roman citizens who are not from Italy mm-hmm. and they're writing Roman history as their history. Um, but they're also writing in an imperial context and in the imperial context, there's a real ambiguity about the Republic. Um, there's a sense that the, the old Republic of like the third century BC, um, that there was something sort of good about that and functional and successful. These authors though, are extremely hostile to the Republic of the first century BC, you know, Mm. the Republic that ends up collapsing. Um, and even the Republic of the late second century BC. Uh, and it's a, it's a complicated legacy because these are authors who of course didn't live through this, and their ancestors didn't live through this, um, at least as sort of subjects of the Romans. Uh, and, and so what they're seeing is the Republic is an ideal, but the empire is better than the late Republic. And so it's a complicated view of what the Republic is. Um, once you get into the first century BC, you start getting a good run of contemporary Latin sources, mm-hmm. but they show up in, in spurts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have quite a bit of Cicero from the 60s, 50s, and 40s. And then he's mm-hmm. executed in 40. He's mm-hmm. executed, uh, and that's the end of Cicero. Yeah. Um, you have batches of Sallust. Sallust is, is my favorite Latin author. He's incredibly skilled. Um, and the moments where you have Sallust, you have a great narrative. But the moments you don't have Sallust, you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. And so for the period um, of the war with Jugurtha, which is in the, the late 2nd century, um, you have Sallust and the narrative is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then the war ends and you don't have Sallust. Um, and then Sallust picks up again with Catiline. And in, you know, and then in you know, these sort of burst of things in the year 63, um, you have Cicero, you have Sallust, you have, mm-hmm. you know, these wonderful accounts and then they cut off again. Darkness. Um, why did you, why, why not Livy? Uh, I li- I use Livy, but Livy is, um, is epitomized for a lot of the material that's that's quite useful for the mm-hmm. early stuff you have Livy and you have Livy in his fullness 
Um, but once you get into the second century, uh, you're working with epitomes of Livy, mm-hmm. not the full text. Uh, and Expl- you know, and explain you have, what an epitome is. Uh, so what happened with Livy is the the full work of Livy was incredibly long. Mm-hmm. Um, and in and the same is true of someone like Cassius Dio. I mean, you have epitomes of, of a large part of Cassius Dio also. Um, but what what we know happened with Livy is there was a massive sort of effort to copy Livy in these beautiful volumes in the late fourth century. Um, and so some pieces of Livy exist as, you know, the product of these incredible kind of artistic um, copying of, of the originals of Livy. And we actually know some of the people who did this and have letters talking about them doing this. Um, but what didn't kind of make it through there was lost. And all you have are people who summarized Livy who were later copied. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the West, um, the break with Roman history is in many ways quite significant. You know, the kingdoms that sort of come over after the Romans sort of withdraw from places like France and Spain have something of an interest in Roman history, but it's not their history. You know, it's, it's in a sense the history of a, a past. Um, the Byzantine world is different because that is a Roman empire. It remains a Roman empire. And so you are more likely to have a full run of Greek histories of the Roman state mm-hmm. uh, than you are of, of Latin histories. Because in the Latin world, that history becomes someone else's history. Mm-hmm. In Constantinople, it's their history, mm-hmm. and it stays their history through the 15th century. Um, and, and so that's why, weirdly, for the Republic, in Latin, you have this sort of scattershot approach, where you have moments where the world is erupting with amazing material that gives you like a day-to-day narrative of what's happening. Um, and then you have whole decades where you have nothing. And those moments of sort of great sources and no sources don't even connect. You know, the 80s and 70s, the source material is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 60s, the source material is amazing. Uh, that's the life of the classical historian. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yeah. Well, when people complain about uh, colonial America, colonial Virginia being badly documented compared to, say, New England. They, they don't. They should try Roman history sometime. Let's talk about the structure of the Republic, which is yeah. really, I, I realized I had forgotten how complex it is uh, and how foreign in its complexity in some ways. It's not neat. It's not tidy. It's not 18th century enlightenment clean. It is extreme. It's the accretion of many, many decades and centuries of experimentation and organic growth. So let's talk about the offices first. Um, how many are there? How many offices exist under the Republic? Uh, well, so it depends on when we're talking about where, sure. when we're talking yeah. about and what but we're constantly. Let's talk about around, uh, by like first Punic, second Punic war, because we're going to focus on that. I think a lot. In the, um, in the first and second Punic war, by the second Punic war, um, the major offices are the consulship, mm-hmm. um, which is basically the, the sort of, I mean, in some ways, the, the model for the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, it's someone who has a military command and it ha- and it's someone who has um, an ability to sort of put forward legislation, veto legislation, and, and sort of convene discussions mm-hmm. of sort of policy. Uh, the principle that every Roman office exists under um, during the Republic is that no one can hold an office individually, mm-hmm. with one exception. And this is the emergency office of the dictatorship, which is supposed to last for six months. And only happens when there's a really serious crisis mm-hmm. where you need someone to act decisively. 
but the basic principle for all of these offices is that nobody should exist without a check. Um, and everybody who holds an office has the ability to basically stop the actions of their colleague. So there are, two, uh, always, there are always two. There's uh, always at least two. At least two. So there's two consuls, one there, and everyone's term limited as well. Yeah, it's a one-year term yeah. for all of these. Uh, so uh, we've got the consul, and then there are, what, at least four offices below consul. There's the praetor, who is a, a basically a, the equivalent of the attorney general. I mean, this is someone who is interested, who is responsible for law, the interpretation of law, and the implementation of law. But not actually uh, judging cases, just to, uh, acting they, in a prosecutorial function? or, or uh, I mean, they, they can, but okay. they are responsible basically for, um, you know, interpreting what law is. Okay. And so each year when the praetors sort of take office, there's something called the Praetor's Edict, where mm -hmm. they say, here's a principle of law, this is how it applies now. And it's progressive. Um, the Roman system of law basically is progressive. Mm -hmm. So each Praetor's Edict remains binding and it can be amended or adapted or you know scrapped. But um, if it's not, it's still binding. And so the Praetors sort of represent um, not necessarily lawmakers, but you know, law interpreters. Mm -hmm. how, many, uh, how many Praetors are there? This varies over time, sure. um, but the general principle again is you started with two, yeah, uh, and and then it moves on serving um, serving for a year again, like serving a consul. for a year. Okay, yeah. does everyone serve for basically a year with the exception of the dictator? That's the principle. That's the principle. Aediles. Yeah. Uh, 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 so the aediles. Aediles. Um, sorry, so these are figures who are in charge of the markets, more or less. Um, and what that means is they, you know, these are the people who make sure that the weights and measures are appropriate. Um, they are responsible for sort of commercial activities. Mm -hmm. um, and this, again, and depending on your period, you know, you start out with two, depending on your period, this, this increases. Um, and I don't, I think it's, it's hard to say, you know, mm -hmm. exactly what's prompting those increases, mm -hmm. except that. The basic idea, I think, that we have to keep in mind is that the Republic starts as an enterprise for Roman citizens um, in a city that is very small. Mm -hmm. It starts in 509 BC, in theory. Um, and what it's designed to do then is basically govern a few tens of thousands of people in yeah. a relatively small geographic area. It's like the, the even though you can see the reason for having a dictator is when the walls of the city are threatened. And you, exactly. You got for something that's an immediate, really close to th Rome threat, um, and it's six months, and then you're done. You know. Yeah. Hopefully. And the, the idea is, if if whatever it is you're set, you're tasked with doing, you do it, you stop, mm -hmm. and then you yeah. give up. Um, but the, who's the left? The basic sort of uh, the quaestors okay. are left, um, and the quaestors are in charge of managing accounts. They're budget officials, more okay. or less. Right. Uh, but again, with all of these, you can see that it's it's relatively streamlined and efficient when the city is small. Mm -hmm. And as the city develops into first, um, you know, a larger central Italian power, and then eventually a Mediterranean empire, you have to get more and more of these people, mm -hmm. and you have to basically subdivide their functions. Um, and so, you know, what started out the quaestor was basically the person who managed the accounts um, of the city, and it was relatively confined. Um, by the time you're conducting campaigns across the Mediterranean, you have quaestors who go out with generals. Yeah. Uh, and you, um, you know, consuls who are supposed to hold military authority for a year, 
Uh, sometimes it'll take you, you know, six months from January to get an army to where you need it to go. Mm-hmm. That consul will basically, if he only has one year, will show up and leave. Mm-hmm. So they create offices called the proconsulship, which basically extends the command of these people. Um, but the thing that's striking about the Republic is that it is able to scale up these offices mm-hmm. and sort of adapt their functions as the state needs it. Um, One office we didn't mention was the Tribune, which yeah. is one of the, perhaps the, other than consuls, perhaps the best known of these. Um, exactly. We, sh- we should probably, exp- I think we can best explain them when we get to assemblies, though. Um, the assembly that everyone knows about is the Senate. And uh-huh. yet, um, it's I, I guess I never really got through my head that the, no one's a no one is uh, elected to the Senate. Uh, not directly. Not directly. <laughs> uh, how, so how does how do you get to be a senator? In, in well, the, so in initially, um, I, the Senate probably has its roots in an assembly of patricians mm-hmm. under the kings. Um, and before, you know, back in the sort of really misty sort of moments of early Roman history, um, Rome was a monarchy. Mm-hmm. And when a king died, the members of the sort of hereditary aristocracy would each, the leading sort of member of each of those families would take a turn for a few days as king. And then they would all get together and vote to see who should be the next king. And so the whole patrician plebeian thing goes back to the, you're tracing your lineage back to the monarchy? Because it's not, it relates, it has nothing to do with economic class. It's it's more of a lineage thing, right? It's a status. Status. Your family. Yeah. Um, and so if you're born a patrician, you're a patrician. Right. Um, and basically, with very few exceptions in the Republic, you if you're born a patrician, you are a patrician. And if you're not born a patrician, you're a plebeian. So I can't, my family can't stop being patrician. Right. Yeah. You could arrange to be adopted by a plebeian if you wanted to not be a patrician anymore. But right. that's the only way you can do it. And can, um, and can a, does the Senate ever to like a, say this family of a traitor remove the patricianness of the, their patricianness? Or is this something that just can't be, is inviolate? It's just what you are. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and so the Senate starts out as this patrician thing. Um, when the Republic is founded, the main offices of the Republic are confined to patricians mm-hmm. because they're the ones who led the revolu- revolution. Mm-hmm. And so the very earliest Senate is made up of former office holders who are, of course, patricians, because that's, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be an aedile or a quaestor or a praetor or a consul. Um, you have to have held one of those offices to make it into the Senate. Um, within 15 years, the most important plebeians say this doesn't work for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have offices open to us. We need to have some sort of dialogue. Um, we need to have some sort of political standing. And over the course of about 200 years, you see gradually the restrictions between the restrictions sort of limiting things like marriage and office holding um, and separating things into categories of patrician or non-patrician, those all break down. And Mm -hmm. so by 287, um, plebeians can be consuls, plebeians can hold offices, the Senate is made up of patricians and plebeians, and it's determined, its membership is determined by office holding. Um, and so if you have held an office that qualifies you for the Senate, then you are a senator. What office? Uh, do those, all those offices that we've previously uh, mentioned, do those all qualify me if, uh, yeah. to be a senator? So after yeah. I've served that term as an aedile, I sort of ascend to the Senate. 
it's yes. Okay. Um, and there are, um, as you move through time, and this is difficult to document, they become property qualifications for mm-hmm. senatorial membership in addition to office holding qualifications. Um, and as you get into the first century BC, uh, you have people who are more or less kind of asked to act as senators who don't really hold the offices. They get sort of what's called adlected into the Senate, just sort of lifted and placed in the Senate. So, um, but that's a very late development. In addition to the Senate, there are at least, by my count, three more assemblies. Um, but maybe there are others. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we've got the, what, the Comitia, uh, the Curiata, yeah. uh, which is, you say, is effectively ceremonial, um, but does uh, adoptions, wills, that sort of thing. Some kind, it's, right. We would call it some kind of court, um, some sort of, uh, essentially. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it did have, this is an assembly probably set up under the kings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was designed um, to function as an alternative to a patrician assembly. And so it's scaled up so that oh, the people okay. who have the most money um, to contribute to service in the military as foot soldiers. Mm-hmm. So this is basically the upper middle class. They dominate this assembly. Oh, okay. um, then, and we, then we've got it this. Doesn't have, the Republic doesn't want this to be very important okay. because of what the Republic's doing. Uh-huh. Then we've got the Centuriata, which is yeah. interesting uh, because it's really a complex. Uh, my notes are very long here. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very complex sort of assembly. So if we could describe that briskly, it, it, as briskly uh, as we can. The Centuriate Assembly is is based on sort of property divisions in such a way that um, the elections and the votes in that assembly will be carried by basically um, and can be carried by uh, the two highest property groups. Mm-hmm. And and so what this does is it ensures that votes taken in this group, in this assembly, um, will be won not by the the greatest number of voters, but by a certain set of economic interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is important in understanding a lot of the developments across the Republic, because mm-hmm. um, when you get into moments where there is economic um, tension, we have been trained to see this in Marxist terms. You know, we have for the last sort of 150 years, people have seen um, conflict in the Roman Republic and the rise of populists in the Roman Republic as uh, things that, that come out of class struggle. Mm-hmm. And it's the lower classes who are propelling these people. But the Roman Republic doesn't have a mechanism for the lower classes to repel people, aside from basically acting violently. Mm-hmm. Instead, if somebody is winning elections, they have to be doing it by appealing to the upper upper middle class and the mm-hmm. upper middle class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can pull the upper middle class and upper upper middle class along by appealing to rich people um, and patricians, or you can pull them along by appealing to poor people, but you can't win with just rich people or poor people. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to basically get this this sort of middle core. And these are not poor people. You know, mm-hmm. these, are, these are not struggling people. These are people with su- significant property. Uh, they're, yes. not, they're not just uh, poor dwellers in Rome, poor city dwellers. Yeah, um, but they, they can be persuaded if they feel anxious enough, the concerns of poor people will be persuasive to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are a group of people that dominate this assembly and dominate a lot of the voting and choices for um, certain elected offices. And the only way that you can win 
um, is by appealing to a group that should be relatively conservative because they are doing well. So how do these people, these these votes of the assemblies, uh, they all, for example, this is a, a large, 193 centuries, uh, each a class of people uh, owning roughly the same amount of property. How far in, do they come to Rome and how often? Do we know that? Um for that assembly, it's hard to say. Uh-huh. Um, we have accounts of people bringing in supporters from outside of the city to come in. Um, where that, where bringing in supporters from outside of the city becomes really important is in the tribal assemblies. Okay. Um, the Comitia Tributa. Um, because with the Conturiate Assembly, uh, everybody votes, and their votes sort of fit within the century to which they belong. And that's fine. Um, but what it means is a lot of poor people, you know, they, they have one even though they're probably one of the most numerous groups in the city, they have only one vote in that assembly. They will never swing an election in that assembly. Um, And so they probably don't vote. Mm -hmm. But for the tribal assembly, um, this is based on the division of the Roman citizen body into tribes. And in the tribal assembly... Do we know how they uh, did that? I mean, is there any... um, No, we don't. Okay, go on. (laughs) uh, I mean, we we do know how it's done in some cases. Okay. Uh, So there's, there's... tribes within the city of Rome yes. and there's four of them. Yeah. And then there are up to 30 tribes, 31, I think. Tribes and are these ge- geographically, are these like wards within Rome and sort of you know, like, you know, townships outside? I mean, or is it, or are people tribes all intermingled? They're family based. Family, of course. Uh, so if you're a Roman citizen and you get Roman citizen or your family got Roman citizenship 300 years ago from mm-hmm. somebody um, who sponsored them, you know, you, 300 years ago, you know, this person was a slave and they get freed. When they get freed, they get Roman citizenship. They're in the tribe of the person who freed them. Mm-hmm. And so whatever sort of connection you have to that tribe um, is basically familial. Um, and if you're adopted by someone, then you go and you go to a different tribe. But the way that this was set up is um, you have the four urban tribes. And then you have these rural tribes that I think probably once were geographic. Mm-hmm. Um but when the citizen body of, of Rome expands, and you know they founded for a while new tribes each time the citizen body expanded in a significant way, um, when you have massive expansions of the citizen body, say in the 80s BC, uh, what politicians try to do is confine those new citizens to certain tribes hmm. so that you can basically dilute their votes. Um, and another factor that's really quite sort of interesting about the tribal assembly is uh, the four urban tribes, of course, can get the most people in. The only way you vote is to be in the city of Rome. And so poor urban residents of the city of Rome are sort of doubly, dis- doubly mm-hmm. almost disenfranchised mm-hmm. uh, because their tribal assembly votes don't matter very much. Um, and their century assembly votes don't matter very much either. Um, and that will become a factor as you get into the late Republic and you start seeing violence, because then all of a sudden their voices matter in a way that their voting voices don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you see with the tribe with the tribal assembly is those rural tribes, generally speaking, vote in very small numbers, mm-hmm. um, because whoever is in them can be as far away in the late Republic as like the Po Valley. Yeah. Um, they're not going to come to Rome to vote. And the people who belong to those tribes um, who are in Rome tend to be rich. Mm-hmm. Or they tend to be, you know, people belong to those tribes who someone pays to come to Rome to vote. Uh, and so what you have there, again, is a structure where, um, I mean, I, I live in California. 
um, my vote for president matters a whole lot less than somebody who lives in Wyoming. Same principle in the Roman Republic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, two more assemblies quickly. The, uh, the Concilium Plebis. All, all plebeians, only plebeians. All plebeians, only plebeians. Um, patricians are occasionally allowed to address this. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, this is plebeians. And this is just any plebeian that you can get into Rome. So any plebeian is eligible to be in this assembly. Okay. But the voting seems to be done according to tribes also. Oh, as well. Okay. And they elect the tribune. The tribune is the representative of, of, of the plebeians uh, since yeah. time immemorial. Yeah. Well, since the since 494. Yeah, as yeah. best as they can make out, yeah. Um, um, and they they also can pass legislation. The tribu the tribunes can or the the plebeian the, the uh, plebeian assembly can pass legislation proposed by the tribunes and after two eighty seven that legislation binds everybody even patricians, even though patricians have no effective say in what's being said there at mm -hmm. least officially. Mm -hmm. And finally, the popular assembly, which is all the people of Rome. All the people of Rome. Does this ever meet? It seems that it does, uh -huh. um, but this one is kind of mysterious, and there's okay. actually arguments among scholars about whether it even exists. Um, and, you know, I think the, the arguments are significant, but there are moments where you see things happen, uh -huh. um, where someone calls an assembly who is like a consul. They can't call a plebeian assembly. Uh -huh. um, and so the votes must be done in some sort of a popular assembly. Uh -huh. and so the, I think the consensus is it exists, um, the but there are voices who say no it's mm -hmm. just a, an accident of our sources so americans have a, a particularly hard time understanding all this because no one got together at a constitutional convention and came up with this uh no one wrote a bill of there's not it's not written that what well, is written down <laughs> there are laws that are certain written down but the roman constitution is not the way we think of as constitutions What's the big idea behind all these offices and behind all these assemblies? Uh, what's it all for? The basic idea that the I think that the Republic is, is sort of founded on is this notion that um, citizens can avoid being placed under the control of a tyrant by taking responsibility for their own sort of part of the city and the, the sort of polity in which they live. Mm -hmm. And so your office holding is in a sense you performing a function defined by this by the collective will of Romans as expressed in this kind of disembodied institution that is the Republic. Mm -hmm. um, and so everybody who holds an office is performing a function um, mm -hmm. in the Republic. They aren't necessarily guiding the Republic so much as the Republic is sort of asking them to do something for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And so there's an idea of, of sort of a fundamental idea of public service. And the idea of the the idea that underlies that public service is the fact that you are a citizen of a polity, and that polity, if no one is performing these functions and no one is sort of occupying these roles, someone will, and it will be a tyrant, and you will be sort of subject to the whims and um, potentially violence of an individual who's not bound to anything except for that individual's interest. Mm -hmm. And so your obligation as a citizen is to participate in this entity that secures your life and property as a citizen. So this is the why it's a race publica. This pub, the, I mean, it's kind of hard to translate. It, this the thing of the people. Um, yeah, the, the, the public thing. The and public in that thing. sense, public means um, 
in a sense, this is a citizen-held corporation mm-hmm. whose job is to promote the interests of Roman citizens and protect their lives and property. I, I don't recall you discussing this, but how did these? How did later the, uh, theorists who write about it, like like Appian, um, how did or Polybius for that matter, how do they contrast? Say, I mean, Athens had come up with a solution to tyranny as well, which was you yeah. know radical democracy. Um, the Romans come up with something that, well, Cicero will say, and it's not completely wrong, looks an awful lot like Aristotle's ideal mixed system. Um, it's very interesting that they came up with two. They both are responding to the same problem, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that it's the the difference is um, who's leading the revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, if, if Lenin is leading the revolution, it looks different than if Washington is leading the revolution. Right. And what you had in Athens was an aristocrat who was trying to overthrow a tyranny, mm-hmm. but he threw in with people who had radical democratic ideas. And yes. democracy is not invented in Athens. And yeah. so the, the ideas are out there. Um, and what he does is he throws in with people who are, who are familiar with these ideas and, and amenable to these ideas. And what you get is their ideas. And so the, even as small as Rome is, thinking out loud, it's nowhere near as Athens is ridiculously small. We, we don't uh, compared to even the Rome. Right. Would that be right? I mean, well, I just, the just, this, of, just the city versus the sort of anyway. At the time of the Democratic Revolution, um, Athens is probably somewhat similar to is the size of Rome. Same size, okay. Um, you know, Rome is. I think if we we look at like what we can tell of what Rome controlled at the time the the Republic is founded, um, it it may or may not be the size of Attica. Mm-hmm. It's not much bigger than that for sure, mm-hmm. but it's it's relatively small. Okay, that's good. Uh, that way we can't just give a geographical. Uh, explanation for everything it's just there's there's contingency involved there's, there's there's some choice involved it's not that much i mean if you look at a you look at like a google map of, mm-hmm. of the city of rome and you see where the ring road is mm-hmm. we're not too far beyond the ring road you know a little bit but we're not too far beyond the ring road when the republic is founded mm-hmm. um and it's it's agricultural it's rural yeah. it's not urban in the way that um, athens had a good urban core yeah rome probably didn't um and you know, so when this is founded, what you have is uh, an aristocratic counter-revolution to what had been a revolutionary tyranny in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that means is that this sort of push towards um, enfranchising large numbers of people was not what the people setting this revolution have wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, what they wanted to do was to set up something where basically the, the stakeholders in this corporation were patricians. Mm-hmm. And what happened um, was that didn't last. You know, by the 490s, um, wealthy and influential plebeians were saying, wait, you know, we're really important, too. And we need to have a stake in this, too. And you can't do this simply by your birth. By your birth, yeah. And so, um, so and the, the Republican is able to, and this is sort of the, one of the features of your book, the point is that um, the Republic is able to adapt yeah. and has much more resilience than you might think, uh, given what seems its complexity, but its complexity is really part of that resilience. Um, exactly. And that structure is part of its resilience. Let's talk about the Punic Wars for, yeah. for the rest of our time. So um, I propose we think about this as the Plebeian Challenge. The Greek <laughs> the Greek historian and sort of house historian uh, to the uh, Scipio, the Scipio family 
uh, Polybius suggests that um, battle war is the test of any polity um, and whether or not how it meets that. And he's very interested in the, for, he, he's alive during the Third Punic War, but he's, he's yeah. interested in writing a history of the first and second, um, not merely to glorify uh, Scipio Africanus, but to also to play with this idea of political science and history. How does the how does the republic um, survive this? So let's let's march through the first Punic War and get to Hannibal, um, Carthage. Uh, how is it different than it's very different than Rome uh, in many ways? So how what are the the key differences? Uh, so Carthage is um, is also a sort of a republic, but mm-hmm. it's an aristocratic republic. It's an aristocratic republic with with a lot of imperial space. Um, and the large way in which it's sort of functioning um, militarily is through basically sort of slave soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and slavery is a major part of what Carthage is doing, and it's a significant part of its economy. Well, isn't, uh, isn't slavery part of, part of Rome's economy? It, it, it is, but the idea of kind of large-scale agricultural slavery is something that the Carthaginians have really sort of pioneered. Sure. And, and, and they are a maritime economy. Yes, uh, and Carthage controls a significant amount of territory, yeah. um, basically coastal North Africa, um, you know, centered on what's now a suburb of Tunis, but mm-hmm. um, sort of an area that stretches more or less across sort of I suppose Western Libya through um, Algeria uh, and pieces of southern Spain um, and Sicily and the uh, the sort of Western Mediterranean islands. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a significant territory uh, and it um, it has a significant commercial presence as well, mm-hmm. and so it has a very developed economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time of the the First Punic War, Rome is not a naval power. Um, it doesn't really have a significant navy. Uh, it's a, a power within Italy, um, but it's it's a land power. Mm-hmm. Um, and its real success has been in binding together Italy in this kind of federation where um, significant parts of Italy are made up by territory that is controlled directly by Rome and occupied by Roman citizens. But it has a really developed alliance structure as well where cities are independent and they run things independently, uh, but they provide troops when Rome asks them to provide troops. Mm-hmm. And so what you have in a way um, is a sophisticated, integrated and centralized kind of imperial state confronting this, this almost sort of confederation mm-hmm. of allied states that are invested in the sort of military success of this confederation. Um, but those states are, you know, they're subject to Rome, but they're autonomous as well. Um, and so when these two, when these two sort of entities collide, um, it's a very interesting thing because they have distinct strengths mm-hmm. and distinct weaknesses. And the weaknesses um, tend to, you know, almost match exactly the strengths of the adversary. Mm-hmm. The uh Technological differences are summarized by that story that you tell and it's great story about the Romans capturing a ship or it runs aground actually, and they find it and then they have to reverse engineer it because they've never actually had to build ships before. And yeah, then, and mean, then they, learn how to sail them and fight on them and all the rest of that stuff. They have to do that all for the first time. 
And the first ship that they, the first sort of batch of ships they build isn't particularly well designed. You know, they, they can't actually, they, they're fine, except when you put crews in them and they don't work so well. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's that... like the story of the, the Russian um, engineers who reversed engineered an American bomber yeah. at the end of World War II and uh, put in bullet holes because, you know, <laughs> they, they were there, were there and the yeah, shin went or reverse must, engineering. Must have something to do with success. So uh, they fight the first Punic War over what? Their confrontations in southern Italy and over Sicily? They're basically fighting it over Sicily. Over, over Sicily. Um, and it's something that Rome stumbles into, and it didn't particularly want to. Um, Rome had actually enjoyed pretty good relationships with Carthage. Yeah. Um, Carthage had even helped them against Pyrrhus. Yeah. Um, and so they stumble into this because of um, their involvement with a kind of group of pirate bandits who took control of a Sicilian city and they stumble into it. Um, once, but in Roman fashion, once you're in a conflict like this, um, you're all in and and have to conclude it. It it reminds me of, you know, my old Rottweiler, which we gave a a Latin name to, I mean, definitely when they, when the, when the mouth goes around the ankle, they are not going to let go. I mean, that's just, you're going to have to cut, you just can cut the head off, but you, they are not going to let go. They just Exactly. Yeah. And, and so the, the challenge in the first Punic War is how do you compensate for these weaknesses? Carthage is not going to, is not interested in invading Italy. Um, it's not interested in confronting Rome um, and the sort of Roman manpower advantages within Italy. Mm-hmm. And so the war has to be fought uh, in Sicily. And Rome has to be able to confront Carthaginian naval superiority to fight the war. Which, and, um, and eventually they do succeed. It's sort of close to a draw. But... Eventually they succeed, um, but it's very, very expensive. Yes. Um, and it's it's something where the Carthaginians are exhausted first. Mm-hmm. And so they come to an agreement um, and then after the agreement, Rome takes um, Sardinia and Corsica from Carthage when Carthaginian garrisons rebel there. And this is seen by Carthaginians as just a, a complete betrayal. You know, Rome comes to an agreement. They make a peace treaty. In the aftermath of the peace treaty, the Carthaginian garrisons rebel. Rome redeclares war and takes this territory and then sort of closes it again. Well, um, there you and, go. and that sets the stage for Hannibal. <laughs> that sets the Second Punic War. So the Second Punic War does it begin with Hannibal's invasion, or what? What's is it? The, the it begins the pretext once again is is fighting over Sicily, correct? No, it starts in Spain. It starts in Spain, of course. Um, and what happened after um, the loss of Sicily and Sardinia and Corsica is uh, Carthage makes the decision that it needs a way to sort of compensate for these losses and. Um, a general named Hamilcar Barca uh, is sent out and begins a sort of large-scale campaign to subdue a lot of Spain. Um, and this was going to be the way that Carthage compensated for the loss of the central Mediterranean islands. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what was guiding this was probably trade concerns and the access to Spanish um, minerals and metals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you directly control Spain, you can in some ways compensate for the loss of the, the sort of maritime space in between um, Spain and North Africa. Mm-hmm. But uh, what ends up happening is Rome sort of recognizes that this is actually a strategic problem for Romans. Uh, and they make an agreement with the city of Saguntum. And they also make an agreement with the Carthaginians. Um, 
Eventually, Hannibal succeeds as the general in charge of Spain. Um, and the terms of the agreements the Romans made were sort of contradictory. Mm -hmm. uh, they essentially say that it's okay by treaty for Carthage to control everything south of the Ebro River. But then they also say that we will defend the city of Saguntum, which is south of the Ebro River. And um, that's supposed to be a kind of poison pill, right? That, that's the, the thing that um, Romans have agreed to in part because it will give them a pretext to declare war if they want to. Mm -hmm. um, when Hannibal takes the city of Saguntum, Rome declares war. And what Rome expects is it's going to be fighting a sort of next stage version of the first Punic War. Um, and so they initially are going to plan to send armies um, to go to Spain and to go to, to North Africa, but they don't have any armies organized at that point. So mm -hmm. they have to have the consuls um, put together armies, begin their campaigns. And while this is happening, Hannibal manages to advance into basically the Alps and down through the Alps um, and confronts Roman forces in Italy. Well, this is by far... This is uh, far from the first time that Rome has confronted an invasion from the north. The Celts have done it as well. Attacked Rome itself, famously, legendarily, yeah. saved by the geese. Um, <laughs> but there, but it is dazzlingly effective. Um, so first one army, and then and can I, and then another army. So uh, at one of the most devastating defeats that any army is, any republic has ever suffered. Uh, it, uh, I don't know what proportion of Roman citizens have been uh, killed or captured by that time, uh, army serving ones, but it's, it's, it's actually, it's substantial. Uh, and yeah. at that point, it would seem that the Republic should, should give up after having been thoroughly demolished again and again. How do they survive that moment? Well, the challenge that Hannibal sort of recognized he could present to Romans is he could shatter this confederation structure yeah, right. and anyway. peel Roman allies off of off of the Roman side and make them align with him. And he did. And it that's that's Cana. the that, that, that Cana. He's got Cana, but it, it he did peel them off. Yeah, uh, that's but the thing. It took um, it took three really significant Roman defeats, and Cana is a, a devastating defeat. Yeah. Um, and it's only after Cani that some of them start peeling off. And what saves Rome is a combination of really two things. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing that Rome realizes is that Hannibal cannot control all of this territory because there are people and there are cities in this alliance structure that don't look to Hannibal. Mm -hmm. um, what they see is that um, it makes sense for their local interests to still continue with Rome because Hannibal was supporting a local rival city. And within cities, you have people who, who say, the people who are in charge of this city are my rivals. They're supporting Hannibal. I want to support Rome, and they will leave it too. And what Rome does is it basically bottles Hannibal up and makes him try to defend the cities that have flipped to him um, and makes him sort of dash around Italy to defend you know, cities that might rebel the minute he leaves. Um, and so the first part of the Roman strategy is to make it so that um, – Hannibal is sort of stuck. You know, he can't move. He can't get more of Italy than he already has and gradually peel off more and more of the cities that had flipped to Hannibal. Mm -hmm. um, the other side of this is Rome then mobilizes nearly probably 65 or 70 percent of its its male population. I mean, basically, there's not going to be a mobilization like that until 
this is a strange coincidence, uh, but probably the Confederacy mobilized something like that uh, by the yeah. by the Civil War. It's bigger than I think the French Revolutionary mobilization. Um, yeah, it's it's massive. And yeah. so what they do is they keep an army in Italy to keep chabs of Hannibal and to fight and conquer back the cities that flipped. Um, and then they send an army to Spain to destroy Carthaginian Spain. And eventually they send an army to North Africa. Mm-hmm. So, and so I, Italy, I guess so I, Hannibal leaves Italy, yeah. um, not because he was defeated in Italy, but because he has to go back and defend Carthage. So the key point is that somehow Romans keep their nerve. And somehow they're able to raise 70%. There's still loyalty. People decide to be to remain a republic, to get back to sort of one of the points of your book. Yeah. Um, also, this what looks like a complex and sort of Rube Goldberg machine of the Roman Republic actually is remarkably effective because you can use all these officers and all these offices. Uh, there's buy-in to the republic. Uh, yeah. But also, there's also administrative functions. You have the bureaucratic functions to um, wage a war, which is on a scale unprecedented in the history of the Republic. It's taking it; it goes over the entire Western Mediterranean. But you've got the aediles and the tribunes, and the you can you can actually do it. You've got the offices to manage it. Yeah, and you have the capacity to first of all to scale up, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and adapt and create sort of proconsuls who can, can, yeah. can conduct this war um, and extend commands. Um, but what you also have is that same citizen ethos. Yeah, of this is our this is an enterprise that we all share in. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the obligation that I have to this entity, and there's a broad consensus about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what's you know what every individual's role is supposed to be in this mm-hmm. um, and the economic consequences I think shouldn't be undersold mm-hmm. uh, Hannibal basically sort of induces near well food shortages and near starvation um, in a lot of the territory that Rome controlled uh, and Hannibal manages to crash what was a relatively unsophisticated economy mm-hmm. um, in the two tens Rome is basically bailed out by getting shipments a massive sh- shipment of gold from Egypt mm-hmm. um, and they had been getting food support from Egypt before that. Uh, it it's not easy. It's it's a very very difficult situation. And yet, um, despite the economic crash, um, there if looking just at Homo economicus, there were plenty of <laughs> uh, pl- if that was just all Romans were, then they should have been reconsidering their position, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And this is what Polybius is thinking about. Yeah. Is you know in this moment um, where there was a deal. You know, you could have made a deal. You could have mm-hmm. made some sort of an agreement and gotten rid of Hannibal and, and reconstructed. No one even thought to do it. And because, there wasn't even a, a party pushing this. Yeah, thinking out loud. I mean, and because of this variety of assemblies, um, they don't need polling to know what people think about things. Yeah. Um, they have they have a political influence going on from various parts of society. Um, they're able leaders of the Rome are able to take the temperature, but uh, there's not just political buy and there's also the there's also a spiritual almost a spiritual level of buy well actually no there is a spiritual level of buy-in because the of course religion being so co- closely connected to the uh, their public thing you know and to yeah the, and, and to the whole matter of Rome um, yeah let's talk about uh, so they win <laughs> uh, the um, for you, the Punic Wars, and we're really going way over time, but that's all right. Uh, if it's okay for you, it's okay for me. 
it's uh, the inflection point uh, for you, uh, the where the Republic begins to show its mortality, is in what happens after the Punic Wars. So let's march through that. One is just an increase in specie, an absolutely incredible increase in the amount of silver and gold that's come into the Republic. Um, we have numbers on that. Do you have that off the top of your head? Uh, off the top of my head, no. But what, what you have is basically um, after the Second Punic War, um, Rome manages to to get a lot of property from sort of looting during the war yeah, yeah. Um, in the campaigns in North Africa. Uh, but then it also institutes this policy of sort of reparations almost, where uh, the defeated foe pays an indemnity each year to the Romans. Um, and this is a policy that as... Rome sort of moves after the Second Punic War into Greece, mm-hmm. fighting Greek states, and then into Asia Minor, fighting um, the Seleucids, the Hellenistic kingdom that was in charge of Syria. Um, these these become a staple of the Roman budget. You know, mm-hmm. these these influxes of precious metal from abroad. Um, what ends up happening is that this this metal and this this sort of money gets sort of spread through the Roman economy, um, but Eventually, as you move into the middle part of the second century, uh, this gets replaced as the sort of peace treaty sort of terms wind down. Um, the influx of metal is replaced. The influx of metal from foreign sources is replaced by a sort of influx from domestic sources and taxation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are, what the Roman Republic decides to do is not build out a professional bureaucratic class, but contract out the collection of tax revenue and also the collection of kind of mining revenue um, from, you know, places where they're mining silver or places where they're taxing subjects. Uh, And what it seems happens um, is that the people who get the contracts to do this must pay up front. And these are massive contracts. Mm -hmm. Um, They're likely to be able to pay off the contract and make some money on it, but someone has to front them the money. And what we tend, what we begin to see in the middle part of the second century is clear evidence that the loans that are being used to pay in advance for construction contracts and mining contracts and all other sorts of public contracts are clearly being resold, as are um, private loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so sometime in the second century, you have the emergence of basically a sort of financial sector in Rome that changes the way wealth exists. Um, the third century sort of undeveloped Roman economy that Hannibal collapses mm-hmm. is probably an economy that is basically cash-based. Um, it, it doesn't seem like there's much evidence of financial instruments there. Um, by the middle of the second century, there are you know corporations almost. Mm-hmm. Um, very clear evidence of sort of money changing hands that is not coined money, right. but some other form of money um, that is probably tied to all of these loans that are now sort of percolating through the economy as a different form of money. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a difficult economy to understand if you didn't grow up in it. And it's a difficult economy for us to understand now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and so what that means is there are people who get it. Cato the Elder is one of the people who gets it. Which is, given his reputation as the crusty old agrarian and, and defender of ro- traditional Roman values and virtues, uh, it's really hilarious kind of to find him that he was like a brilliant investment capitalist. Yeah. And, and he was all those things. He was all those things. Uh, yeah, exactly. He was an agrarian. He could uh, walk he and chew gum. It. He could walk and chew gum. Well, the, the model a hundred years ago or even 30 years ago was that Cato was rich because Cato had estates. Yeah. 
and Cato had estates, and Cato was rich. But Cato was not rich because he had estates. Um, the estates were part of a, a really sort of diverse investment portfolio that includes all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. um, because he was smart and he understood what that economic moment promised. Um, and there were a lot of Romans who were like that, but there were a whole lot more Romans who weren't. Uh, and this is the sort of root of the unwinding of that uh -huh. consensus. There are also a lot fewer Romans, uh, according to the census. Uh, it went from in 234, 233, the census was 270,000, 271,000. By 20928, it was down to 137,000, give or take, uh, yeah. because of various types of death and enslavement. Well, so um, what happens after the Second Punic War is uh, it's very clear that Roman marriage patterns change and Roman family sizes change. Hmm. How so? Uh, so what we can we can see this in a lot of different ways, and it is you know things looking like um, looking at things like tombstones and looking at things like burial patterns and also census numbers. Mm -hmm. um, what we see is that it's clear that women are marrying younger. Uh, I'm sorry, men are marrying younger mm -hmm. and they're having more children um, in this sort of two generations after the Second Punic War. And so what that means is the Roman population actually sort of stabilizes and then increases beyond its level so before a, the Second Punic There's War. a crash and then there's a very rapid recovery. In the same way you have sort of a European baby boom after World War II. Sure, yeah. Um, it's, it's the similar sort of process. And so what that means is these people who kind of come of age in the generation after the Second Punic War, um, there's lots of economic opportunities for them because Italy is, in a sense, filling back out to yeah. sort of occupy, you know, all of the economic space that had been disrupted by Hannibal. Um, and the generation after that, uh, you know, there's more economic space for them to fill because there's been economic growth. But by the time you get to the 150s, the growth is not keeping up with the number of people. And the land um, that had been distributed in its sort of nice, significant portions for people in the, in the generation that came of age after Hannibal, mm -hmm. um, you know, they also had lots of children, and the land is now getting divided into smaller portions. So there have been lots of land that had been seized from cities who had allied themselves with Hannibal. Yeah, uh, that and the population crash means that, you know, if you're a survivor in 200, life is pretty good. It's good. Uh, you have I mean, a lot of opportunity. You have a lot of opportunity. That's like, and seems like in some ways the golden moment of the republic. Um, yeah. You know, uh, there's silver now coinage instead of bronze. Um, happy days are here again. You know, you've got land possibilities of investment if you understand how to do all that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the yeah, popula so, population grows and there's less and less land to give out to these, these, in the, your heirs. Yeah. Um, and what happens is this is happening at the same time that this financial sector is causing some people to become super wealthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so what you have is uh, not a model where, um, the grandchildren of the survivors of Hannibal are impoverished mm -hmm. in like desperate sort of grinding, um, starvation level impoverishment mm -hmm. but they're not going to do as well as their parents did mm -hmm. and they're definitely not going to do as well as their grandparents did mm -hmm. uh and that you know as, as we've seen and as we see in sort of society now like that's a recipe for 
for problems when there's economic growth that certain people are enjoying disproportionately at a moment when other people are feeling insecurity um that requires a political intervention of some sort and there's not even a there's no way there's no joint sort of joint stock company in which you can take benefit of the success of that one percent yeah um there's no way and there's not even really a taxation structure mm-hmm. um because taxes have effectively been done away on italians in italian land um and so these people exist you know they exist and then you exist and the state is not providing any kind of a buffer or redistribution at all so is there i mean the the, the standard sort of i don't know tacitan view is that uh things got outrageous uh, ostentatious um you seem to to buy into that um that to pe- a degree yeah to people were people yeah that there were the curbs that uh that fabricius had exemplifies in his discussion with Pyrrhus, uh, the idea that my future generations will only venerate me if I am true to the Republic, um, eh, rather than acquiring wealth, eh, you know, that's kind of, that's changing. No, no, no. Forget the future generations. Let's, you know, buy some more chariots and, uh, and, and go racing or something or whatever they were spending their money on. I don't know. Yeah, there there is a tremendous amount of ostentatious wealth, um, and as you get into the first century BC, this is this you know this is the moment when all of the Roman moralists are really thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a number of factors I think that play into that. I mean, one of them is that the Republic is now very large. Yeah, uh, there has to be other space for achievement because you know you're not probably going to be a senator, even if you're fabulously wealthy. There are citizens all across Italy. Um, by like 88 BC, everyone in Italy is a Roman citizen. Mm-hmm. So there's millions of Roman citizens now instead of, you know, a couple tens of thousands. And it, and, it, it seems to me, I mean, this is, relates to a conversation I had with Barry Strauss. I forget what episode it was about the death of Caesar. There's yeah. one of the, the failures of the Republic here at this point we can talk about it, is a way of politically including other people throughout the Italian peninsula. Um, it seems to me, I mean, what, what's your feeling about that? Um, I mean, it it does include them, but it's impossible to include them in a way that um, makes them fully feel like they're participating. Right. Roman elites and Italian elites, you know, that Pompey, for example, is from an Italian elite family. Mm-hmm. His father was a consul, but the family, um, you know, they're not a Roman patrician family. They're not even really a Roman family. They're an Italian family. Mm-hmm. And that was something that Pompey, I think, had to compensate for and overcompensate for, mm-hmm. perhaps. Mm-hmm. But um, but that was a path that was available to but people. But he had to so move. It wasn't available to very many of them. Yeah, and they had to move to Rome in order to do that, right? I mean, they basically... Uh, sort of. Sort of, yeah. I mean, his, his ties in Picenum are really strong, and they okay. remain really strong. Um, but... What I think is different in a, a polity with six million citizens um, from a polity with 10,000 citizens is there's a whole lot of people who need space to feel like they've achieved something. And a republic of that size just can't provide that much space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, wealth is a way to do that. Um, business is a way to do that. Um, ostentatious displays in your home city is a way to do that. Um, but the Republic no longer has a monopoly on what matters. Mm-hmm. But, and but it's the willingness, I guess, uh, somewhat thing is it's the willingness of even people in that in the 
in the Hannibal generation, Scipio Africanus himself, to build monuments to oneself, which is uh, really surprising. It happens so fast. Yeah. Um, it really is. It's an unfortunate precedent. He, he said delicately. Um, well, Flam- Flamininus is an even better one. Yeah, you know, give, there's give, a gold give him. point of him issued during his lifetime, and this is yeah, it's that's, not issued in Rome. Yeah, but it's issued. And what's it show? Uh, it's his. I mean, it's a portrait, mm-hmm. uh, and that that isn't done. I mean, the, the first living person to appear in a Roman coin is probably Marius, and it's not completely clear. Um, it's a supporter who does a sort of traditional coin with a chariot, like a victory chariot. And it seems like Marius and his son are in the chariot, but mm-hmm. it's not marked as that. It's your, your interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and bef- and then the first one really uh, after that is Caesar. Hmm. So it's, it's not really done in the Republic, except in these weird moments. But I think you're right that this period right after the Second Punic War, um, you do see a real effort to do sort of monuments to oneself and um, aggrandizements of your legacy and your reputation in whatever media you think work best for you. Yeah, the stuff about the coins is is really interesting. Um, the way in which the people who had the coin contracts could use it as a sort of uh, display of what their own, you know, as advertising themselves or of their cause or whatever they were interested in. It's, it's yeah. really... We don't have that option available to us, but maybe in a couple of years, I don't know. Maybe that could be sold, <laughs> sold off. Um, so the Gracchi, let's, yeah. let's, let's finish up with, with the story there because it gets sadder and sadder after that. Uh, who were the Gracchi and what do they represent and why are for you here? Another question. Uh, why do they mark a point of no return? Uh, so the Gracchi are two brothers. Um, the older brother is, a, is Tiberius Gracchus, and then his brother Gaius Gracchus is significantly younger. Mm-hmm. Um, Tiberius Gracchus comes from this, this sort of wonderful marriage of um, the Scipio family and the uh, family of the Gracchi, who were once rivals of the Scipiones. And they, you know, they, they form a marriage alliance, and his mother is part of that marriage alliance. Um, and this... Uh, is a person who is on the track to become a really sort of successful establishment politician. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of what he's guiding his life towards doing. Um, he ends up instead uh, getting mixed up in a military campaign where the Roman forces lose and Tiberius Gracchus has to negotiate the, the treaty by which the Romans are sort of not executed and released. Uh, the, sort of a a faction in the Roman Senate demagogues against this treaty, um, votes to have Tiberius Gracchus and all of the soldiers sent back. There's protests from the the families of the soldiers, and in the end, they just send the commander back. Um, But what that meant was that Tiberius Gracchus now was tainted. He he couldn't be a creature of the establishment Mm -hmm. because, you know, he had gone against the establishment. Mm -hmm. And... um, and he also didn't particularly want to be a creature of the establishment after they had sort of discarded him. And so he begins his career as uh, he restarts his career by running for Tribune of the Plebs. Uh, and he does it with a very populist angle. Um, and initially, his inclination is to try to do something to address these economic inequalities and um, economic concerns. 
by distributing public land to people who didn't have it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a relatively modest proposal, and mm -hmm. it is something that ranges to compensate the landholders who, who lose their land or lose the land they've been renting. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not radical. You know, no, it's not, it's you not know, <laughs> no, it's not. It's not Lenin's land of farm. He's not killing off the kulaks. Uh, he's no. not, you know, it's it's very modest and thoughtful. We might even and say it gets blocked nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, and then he takes a turn that is um, really sort of dangerous. He he begins marshalling supporters. Um, they sort of engage in in threats. Um, he's blocked by a fellow tribune from pushing his law through. So he calls a popular meeting in which that the 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 motion is that that tribune should be deposed, which was something that had never happened before. Never um, happened before in the history of the republic. Not not in this way. No, mm -hmm. it never. As far as we know, no one had ever deposed the tribune on the basis of the fact that the tribune was vetoing a popular measure. Okay. Um, and so when Tiberius Gracchus sort of has this happen. He, of course, has supporters who look threatening and intimidating, and the vote goes through, and the tribune is deposed. The law is funded. Um, the Senate then refuses to provide any money, provide any money to actually do the land reform. Uh, and then a king in the kingdom of Pergamum dies, uh, leaving his kingdom to the Roman people, mm -hmm. which Tiberius Gracchus says means the plebeians. Um, and he passes a law in the plebeian assembly saying that this money from the kingdom of Pergamum will be used to fund land reform. Uh, this, again, is completely unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, foreign affairs is supposed to be an affair, or a, a set of prerogatives that the Senate has, and financial aspects of the state the Senate is supposed to supervise. And Tiberius Gracchus basically took over both of those. Um, and then he decides to run for re-election. And during the re-election campaign, uh, senators become alarmed enough that they put together a mob that attacks him and kills him. Uh, and this is the first time in over 300 years that anybody had been killed for behaving in a political fashion. And, in so, their own and so, I mean, this is very briefly, then his brother years later will also kind of go down the same path that his older brother had done. His brother is a, is a much more committed reformist and much more radical. Okay, um, and he doesn't have the opportunity to pursue an establishment path. He knows no one in the establishment will get along with him or work with him. Um, and so his policies are much more expansive. Mm -hmm. He who proposes citizenship for all Italians, which doesn't go through until 40 years later after a war. Mm -hmm. um, he proposes establishing food support for the poor in the city of Rome. Um, he proposes mechanisms to fund that. He proposes establishing colonies to give the landless a sort of new place to live and new status. Uh, and, you know, it, and he knows that there's no way that he's going to get any sort of compromises through um, establishment channels because of who his brother was. Uh, and so in some ways he's more radical, but he doesn't use violence or the threat of violence at all. Um, and so it's shocking to Romans when in the end he's treated the same way his brother is. And he also is killed. Um, you know, for political reasons. Uh, and what that basically shows is that violence is a tool. Um, it's now a political tool. And, and it can be used in whatever sort of capacity you want to use it, and it can be used strategically. Um, and that is a completely new thing in the Roman Republic. So the violence can be used. That, and it, that also 
Tiberius had introduced what you say is, quote, a revolutionary new idea that true liberty existed only when popular voices and votes overcame the distorting force of the Senate and elites. So there's an idea now that the Senate is somehow, it's compromised at best. Yeah. It's compromised. It's actually probably illegitimate um, as so long as it's overriding. So any controlling authority within the Constitution that overrides the direct will of the people as expressed by the plebeians is illegitimate. Yeah. Is that too far? Is that too, is that the, too extreme an idea, uh, enunciation of that idea? Uh, I think that what you would, what you could basically say is that all of these institutional structures in the Republic are designed to generate consensus. Yeah. And that takes a long time to do. Yes. And the Senate is supposed to be the thing that facilitates this. Um, if the Senate is not on board with something, it can still become law, but it's not supposed to. People don't want that to be the way that the system works. Mm -hmm. um, and what Tiberius is essentially saying is all of these mechanisms that slow things down and build up consensus are irrelevant. Because when the people say they want something, they should get it. There shouldn't be a process of sort of slowing down and modifying and building broad consensus. Instead, if the people say they want it, they should get it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a voice um, that now should dictate policy without any mediation at all um, and without anything that should, should sort of serve as a break to make it sort of more effective. It's, a, it's in a sense a radical democratic view. Um, if radical democracy excluded the aristocrats, which it never did. Um, and so in this sense, what Tiberius is doing is one of the more radical moves in all of ancient political theory mm -hmm. uh, to say that basically the elites should have no voice. Mm -hmm. The hereditary aristocracy should have no voice and nothing should mediate the voice of the people. It's as if, if the Athenian assembly had ostracized everybody of a certain, you know, wealth category, everyone, all of them were ostracized rather than just, you know, one a year or however often they did that. Um, yeah. You also write, and this gets back to where we're concluding, after the death of Gaius, no institution existed, no institutions existed that could protect the life or property of a loser in a political contest, which is really chilling. That's just, yeah. Uh, once you got to that point, uh, once you have gotten to the point where you believe the result of any political contest is that your life or property is in jeopardy, and maybe is not just probably in jeopardy, not possibly, but probably in jeopardy, all of a sudden politics becomes very ugly. Yeah. And it did. It did. And from, it there, did. On, and from there on out, it is one long, terrible thing after another. But there's nothing that, I, I think that what you helped me see is there's nothing that Caesar did that isn't anticipated in the Gracchi. In that moment. I think that that's true. Um, and I think the one thing that I would say about Caesar yeah. is that um, Caesar, of course, did use violence to take power. Caesar, of course, grounded his, his power on success in civil war. Mm -hmm. But Caesar pardoned his enemies, not from a strategic miscalculation, but because I think Caesar fundamentally was trying in some way to bring the Republic back to that basic promise that this is an enterprise that protects the property and liberty and free and, you know, um, body and person mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of Roman citizens. And so Caesar, I think, pardoned his, his enemies um, 
quite deliberately because Caesar's goal really was to try to come up with some way where a republic controlled by him still provided that basic security that I will not kill you or take your property mm-hmm. unless it's merited. Um, but it will not be arbitrary and there will be sort of opportunities for you to avoid that fate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think Caesar is understood that way. Um, I think everybody sees his, his sort of clemency as something that's kind of anomalous. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a real reason why Caesar did that. And in the end, I think he was aware of what the risk was. But I think that principle mattered enough to him um, that that was something he wanted to preserve. And, you know, he was the only one of those those people fighting Roman civil wars who was willing to do that. Octavian did not do that. Not at all. Not at all. Um, not, he got to be a kind, kindly Augustus later on. But he was he he was uh, he was brutal Octavian when he when he when it was necessary at the beginning. For sure. For sure. Um you obviously believe lessons can be learned from history. Why? Uh, the track record doesn't seem that great. <laughs> um, I think that what history does is it provides us with a set of ways to think about possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is especially true, you know, it's especially true at this moment now where in the United States we're facing all of these sort of political challenges. And I think a lot of people work with the assumption that there's a range of possibilities and that range is relatively constricted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what, what the Roman example shows is that range is a lot less constricted than you imagine. Um, there is no sort of institutional structure that exists outside of the people who maintain it. And if people don't take responsibility for the health of the society around them and the health of the polity around them, it will get weaker. Um, and you can't just count on it to rebound just because it will. I mean, it, it, everybody has a responsibility to take care of this. And what the Romans sort of failed to do was to to continue to have that civic responsibility where everybody had a role in sort of this shared enterprise of governing. Um, as the state got bigger, as it got more sophisticated, as sort of its existence and stability began to be taken for granted, Romans stopped playing that role. Mm-hmm. Or they thought, they thought that that role didn't matter anymore. Um, and I think what history shows us is events are not going to be the same. Personalities are not going to be the same. Systems even aren't going to be the same. But the basic sort of idea that there is a realm of possibility um, and we need, to think, we need to think as broadly as possible about what could happen as a result of what's happening at a particular moment. Um, history does show us that. And it shows us, I think, repeatedly that, um, in a sense, people often take for granted the continued existence of things that are endangered. And um, history shows us the danger of doing that, you know, the, the danger of assuming that what the conditions were two days ago will be the conditions two years from now or let or and let alone 200 years ago yeah my guest today has been edward j watts he is author of mortal republic how rome fell into tyranny and this has been uh great and thanks so much for joining us 
Tyler, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 